From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Dr. Evan Machete with Infinite Athlete, the company whose mission is to build an operating system for sports that powers infinite innovation and makes sports better for the fan, the game, and the athlete. Now, I followed Evan's career the last several years while he was studying the science of baseball infield skin, or as we later will see, the science of the dirt. In his current role, he's responsible for the testing of NFL playing services. Before we get to my conversation with Evan, data-driven management, whether it's sports turf or golf turf, will invariably include nutrient and pesticide application. And for that precision that data brings, you need our partners at Frost Spray Technology. Buy your next sprayer from a sprayer company, not a mower company. Learn more about all that Frost offers at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking. I'm so pleased to be joined with Dr. Evan Machete. Nice to have you on the show. I've just been enamored with your both your career, particularly your work at Penn State on infield skin stuff. And for those of you golf guys that really like baseball, be prepared to geek out on this a little bit. And of course, your new role with BioCourse since the uh, awarding of your degree. And we're going to get to that work uh, with the NFL. But let's start out with a little tidbit that we share from my time in Wisconsin, where I got to know a guy named Paul Zwaska, who apparently served as an inspiration for you. So let's use your uh, relationship with Paul as your entry to the turf grass industry, I'm assuming. Yeah, that's a very appropriate starting place because Paul literally is my entry into the turf industry. I went to Beloit College in Wisconsin. It's a small liberal arts school. I was a geology major, actually, a little bit different than maybe a traditional path into turf management. And after my freshman year of college, I came back home to just find a job, basically, to earn some money in the summertime. And I was fortunate enough to end up on Paul's grounds crew at West Madison Little League. So for the listeners who aren't familiar with Paul and his background. He was the head groundskeeper at Camden Yards and prior to that at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore for I think around 15 years. And Paul was actually one of the first sort of college educated groundskeepers in professional baseball. It had been up until then kind of more the rough and tough style of guy running that sort of operation. So Paul, he he had the background in pro baseball. He took a different job back in Wisconsin where he had grown up um, as a technical sales rep. And he was running the Little League as basically a hobby project or as a volunteer. And he really built this place into a pretty remarkable facility. Although as a Little League, the quality of the fields there was really more like a minor league or a major league facility. So I learned a lot from Paul. And that was kind of my foray into the turf business where I I got hooked on the work and said, wow, this is really cool maybe I can make this into a career. So you had worked with Paul when you were in college and then when you get out, that's when you decided to then get a turf degree or you didn't go to UW-Madison, right? You're not a Madison grad, are you? No, I'm not. So I graduated from Beloit. Paul had floated the idea to me. He's a UW graduate of the soil science program, obviously with the turf focus. So he had put the idea in my mind of possibly transferring, but I was pretty involved at Beloit, I was playing baseball mm-hmm. and I was pretty engaged in the geology major still. So I didn't really want to give that up. So I finished my degree. And in the meantime, I got involved in some research activities with geochemistry and water chemistry with my faculty advisor at Beloit. And I thought, you know, I have this research background and I started looking around for ways that I could pursue maybe a graduate degree because I had many of the classes that would overlap, you know, the natural science, the chemistry, the physics, right. the basic sort of thing. Right. And so I ended up kind of being in the right place at the right time. But I, I emailed Dr. Andy Bingnett at Penn State. And once I had found his research program, 
program that was called the Center for Sports Surface Research. Right. And I just couldn't believe that this was a real thing, that there was actually a whole <laughs> entity devoted to the science of sports fields. Yeah. And I thought, wow, I can combine my interest in natural science and earth science and biology with sports, and I could roll that into a master's degree. So that's how I ended up at Penn State um, the first time for two and a half years working with Andy on a sod production project. Right. And then off to the pirates you go. So it didn't seem like what science suited you well, because you I'm sure Andy would have been happy to keep you around uh, for the Ph.D. because obviously you went back and wound up there the second time. Uh, what made you want to go to work for the pirates or that's is that not where you started? No, I had a few stops actually before I ended up in Pittsburgh. I started out as an intern after the two and a half years there. I was still fascinated by turf and the science of caring for grass. But I also I recognized that I, I wanted to get a little more practical experience. I think a lot of faculty end up just going straight through school and don't have that experience. And I thought I would be much more credible, whether as an academic or an industry professional, if I could sort of speak the language a little bit better. And so I was I kind of started at the bottom. Honestly, I was you know willing to do that even with a master's degree to start over as an intern with the New York Mets. I was really grateful to learn from Bill Deacon yeah. and some of his staff members there. And then I, I went a couple other places. I worked in the minor leagues for one season in Georgia and also in field construction before landing that position in Pittsburgh. So interesting. I don't get to see Billy very much. I spent a little bit more time with Danny over at Yankee Stadium. But boy, yep, yep. does Billy have the same constraints Dan has. You know, I, I watched him take out a section out back a second base for a cricket pitch oh, that yeah. had to go in. I don't know if you remember looking at that picture uh, on Twitter one day when he did it. It was really fascinating. So now you make your way into baseball, right? You played baseball at Beloit. You go get your degree. Yeah, you did some grass stuff. But now you're back in a sport because of your interest in baseball back in a sport that had an interesting surface in it that seemed to align with your geochemical interests, as it turned out to be. When you were working at Pittsburgh and you were fussing with the skin all the time, did you start to think, okay, now it's time to go back for my PhD. I learned the language. I'm at the top of my field here with a pro job. There's only 32 of them. So, you know, you've got one of them. And that's a lovely, lovely stadium in so many ways. You know, the surfaces like to care for, but it's really a beautiful place. When did the ping or pang start, Evan, to make you pivot back to science and the PhD? Yeah. Shout out to PNC Park, you know, for being one of the premier beautiful facilities oh, in Major League Baseball. Absolutely. Really wonderful place to go to work every day. And yeah. part of that, as you alluded to, is the skyline, the view of oh. the Pittsburgh downtown, the triangle in the background. And actually, you know, that was done to obviously facilitate the sight lines, which oftentimes in a major league stadium like that, it's fully enclosed so that you don't, you don't necessarily have that view, but they opened that up so that you could see the skyline. However, the fortunate consequence from a growing environment standpoint is that's kind of South. And so you actually get a little bit more morning sun uh, and you always have a breeze coming off the river, which seemed to really help with the disease pressure. So there is a shaded area next to the Clemente wall that we, I think actually Matt has some grow lights now that he uses on. So we would always struggle with that in the springtime with frost and everything, but mm -hmm. yeah, great place to work. And, um, from a stadium growing environment standpoint, not as bad as some of the other facilities in, at that level. So returning to the question about my changing interests, having the geology background, it sort of changes your view of the way the world works because everything that we have is created by the earth in some way, shape or form. So there's that old saying about something is either grown or mined, right? Right. 
And soil is certainly no different. It forms from rocks over long periods of time. And so I, I had some soils courses while I was earning my master's degree. But really, when I got interested in this topic was actually my first job after that internship where I was doing field construction and traveling around Wisconsin and the greater Midwest, building and renovating baseball fields. And oftentimes we would source local soil materials just from a quarry. And sometimes it was designed for baseball. Sometimes it wasn't. It was just what the high school or the park could afford. And I became really interested in why does this soil perform so differently when its water content changes? And not just from a playability standpoint, but from a handling standpoint, when you're going to install this material to make sure that it's compacted correctly, that it will grade out, right? So as I moved around to different places, I just thought that was a really interesting topic. And I would come home at night after these long days at the stadium, you know, 14 hours in the sun and the, the rain and the cold. And I would try to read about this stuff. And, and you know, there's certainly some literature out there of which Paul is kind of the main author, honestly, of anything you can find on infield mixes. And there's some, there are some commercial companies that have really pushed the bar, you know, quite a bit in terms of the science and the quality of the materials. But when you went to look at the, really the hardcore science, there really wasn't any. And I kind of eventually came the conclusion that if I wanted to know the answer, I would probably have to do the experiments and find out for myself. So I kind of plotted that even before I went to the Pirates, actually, and it, it, it had been bouncing around in my mind for quite a while. But that practical experience of actually caring for the infield and seeing how it performs under different weather conditions and how the players reacted to it, that was kind of what put me over the edge to combine the practical side of managing something and then to take that into a lab and actually you know, sort of dive deep into the science. So you had this on your mind and you're the groundskeeper in this glorious park. That was lovely to hear you wax about the sort of joy of, of working in those environments when you know it's a grind too, right? There's a certain grind to oh, that yeah. work, much like there is to the sport, right? For those of us like me who love baseball and really take pleasure in this sort of long eight-month season, right, that, you know, seems to go on forever. I really like the pacing of the game now quite a bit more since it's sort of, especially the Yanks and the Red Sox became insufferable. Okay, so you're the groundskeeper in Pittsburgh and you've got all these questions in your head and you're charged every night we're producing a field, well, likely is on TV and a regional network, but more importantly is serving, you know, players who are worked in the tens of millions of dollars, even in a place, you know, like Pittsburgh that doesn't spend tons of money. You still have players that, you know, their livelihoods and careers depend on it. And I've always been fascinated by feedback that you get about these things and how that informs some of the questions that evolve. So you got this in your head, rolling around in your head about oh, the, the sort of geology of it, so to speak. And now you're getting feedback from players that are telling you, yeah, well, what the hell was with this machete or what the hell was with that? Did you get feedback, number one? And number two, what did it help you think about when you were formulating maybe some of your research questions later on? There's a couple components to this. One is, in a lot of cases, I think just as it is for greenkeepers on a golf course, in some sense, it's out of sight, out of mind, right? So if the field looks the same every day and it seems to be playing the same, that's really what the players are most after is consistency. They want it to play the same in April when it's cool and possibly raining during a night game or whether it's a hot and sunny July 4th afternoon game. They want it to play the same. And basically, you know, if you're not getting feedback from anybody, it probably you're doing a pretty good job because nobody's complaining, right? So that's number one. If there was something that the players either that they liked or that they were concerned about, oftentimes it would come through the coaches. So we would hear either from a bench coach or uh, possibly a pitching coach, you know, if it was something with the mound that they wanted adjusted, then we would hear from them and kind of make that adjustment accordingly. Okay. The other thing that they would complain about is the mowing patterns <laughs> um, and the ball snaking possibly. But I think oftentimes a lot of that is more imagined than it is real, particularly on the cool season grass. 
So that's what we, the feedback we look for. Certainly, they're interested in the ball bounce right. and the, the traction. Traction is not such a concern in baseball as it might be in a sport like football, where obviously the athletes are a lot larger and imposing you know much more sheer force on the surface. Mm-hmm. But you're always kind of thinking about that in the back of your mind as you're watering the infield. Mm-hmm. There's a fine line between you know, what's enough and what's That's too right. much. Well, and I think what I've talked to other guests about over the years about this topic is, you know, there's a little bit of an art or some philosophical approach. And I've come to understand, I'm not surprised, Greg Elliott with the Giants has been putting moisture sensors uh, in there. A lot of the adjustments you have to make, Evan, right, are also going to be dependent on your climate. I mean, if you're like San Diego, where maybe they count the number of times they pull their tarp on one hand over a two-year yeah, period. Keep it behind the wall, actually. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, it's so infrequent that it ever gets used, right? So you have the different environments, and of course, you can get different feedback. But what I've sort of come to accept is, especially based on that data that you published in Sports Turf a number of years ago that we've talked about on our turf show that showed the frequency of where people are hitting it in the infield, the wear and tear, you know what happens where the sliding is areas are. I'm wondering when you look at, you know, getting more data and knowing that there's different climates Is there a way to bring some homogenizing thought to the way we manage these surfaces or is what you do always going to be dependent on where you are and you can only engineer it so far? I love the term homogenizing thought. It's like a unified theory, so to speak, of infield mixes. So in terms of the regionality, I think there is a component to that. Certainly the weather is different and the hydraulic conductivity of the soil will play into that because in a hot, you know, an arid climate, you get this sort of surface crust where as the water starts to evaporate, you kind of break the hydraulic connection between the soil at the surface and what's beneath it. And at that point, the water has a hard time migrating upward anymore. Sometimes in, during a night game, and especially in a human climate in the summertime, when you have really good moisture deep down in the profile, but the sun goes down and you start getting dew forming, some of that moisture will actually come back up as the air temperature cools down. So that's that is really more of an art. And I think, I guess to, to answer the other part of your question, I believe that managing the infield is always going to be mostly art. And I think if you talk to any groundskeeper, that's what they're going to tell you because it comes down to experience and instinct and feeling the soil under your feet and poking it with a key. And there's a place for the science and for the managing with numbers. And I think one of the ways that could be useful is at a larger facility where it's not necessarily one groundskeeper having their eyes over every square inch of that infield skin, but you might have multiple people watering. And if you want to keep the surfaces consistent across fields, one way to do that might be to go out with a, a moisture probe and pick a value that you like when you feel like the infield is playing well. And then you can instruct your crew to try to keep the infield around that level. So it, in a way, it's a little bit backwards because you're putting the sort of desired outcome first and then backing off the actual number for the water content. But I think it's the same concept as measuring moisture on putting greens, right? Right. where oftentimes you go out and you you find through experience through you know empirically what is the when is my grass on the verge of death what's right. that will point right. and then trying to stay above that and uh, that value is certainly going to be different every facility so it's they're not necessarily comparable apples to apples but it gives you a, a target to shoot for anyway I'm Frank Rossi this is frankly speaking I am absolutely enjoying every minute of this with Evan Machete Evan thanks very much we're going to take a break we'll be right back after this message Well, we are doing an absolute deep dive on sand, silt, and clay. But when it comes to managing your sand-based systems, the pros at DryJack Services have the expertise and equipment to meet your soil amending, top dressing, and aerating needs with one pass. 
Contact your local Dryject representative for more information or visit dryject.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here with Evan Machete. And Evan, we started a little bit at the 30,000-foot view of baseball infield care and sort of what groundskeepers are facing. And I really appreciate how you sort of tied it to a lot of things and targets that golf course superintendents use as well, right? We got a lot of golf course superintendents that listen and a growing number of sports turf managers and apprentices as the career, you know, grows as a viable option for a lot of students interested in working outside in turf grass and landscapes, particularly in urban areas where a lot of these stadiums are sometime. But I want to take a minute and get back to your PhD research. What were fundamentally the questions you wound up asking that then you applied your expertise in studying over time? So for the listeners who aren't really familiar with infield mixes, generally this in the modern era, this is a highly engineered blend of different soil components. So in the past, this was just material that would be excavated from a pit, typically clay, which I'll put in air quotes, and we'll talk a little bit more about what clay is and how to kind of define that and how it fits in this problem. But historically, that's how infield mixes or infield soils were made. They were just harvested, maybe pulverized, and possibly screened if you're lucky to get out some roots and pieces of metal or whatever else might be in there. But these days, these soils are typically mixed from a washed sand to remove the fines, so it's typically a pretty clean sand, and then a finer textured soil, which oftentimes is just referred to as clay. That's the fine-grained soil. But soil scientists of course, are pretty nitpicky about their definitions. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> yeah. And so this is how the materials are made. And so sort of the starting point for my research was really to back away from this particle size definition, which is what is currently used. There's a particular gradation of sand and then this concept of silt to clay ratio, which is a really good start. I don't want there to be a misunderstanding that I don't like this concept. I just think that it's pretty crude in some ways, and it could be possibly improved because it doesn't account for the type of clay that's in there or for the particle size distribution of the clay itself, which is a little bit more difficult to test in the lab. You need a centrifuge, you need some specialized equipment. But basically what we were looking at was kind of three things, the the type of sand or the size gradation of the sand, which I know you've talked about in several episodes on this podcast with Dr. Hummel and perhaps Doug Solat and some others. And so that's certainly, you know, something that's considered in turf management, but the sand is, it's not so different actually from USGA sand, what's often used in infill mixes. The second component that we were going to study was the clays and clay minerals and how the plasticity of those minerals affects the mixture. And then lastly, the critical piece that ties all this together is the water content and how the water content changes and how the behavior performance of the mixture changes. So we want to both zoom out and zoom in. The zoom out is how can we actually measure the performance of the mix, right? Because we're kind of putting the cart before the horse when we choose a specification without any performance criteria. And then to zoom in, you know, literally, we're looking at these particles at the finest level. And we oftentimes talk about sand, silt, and clay in these generalized terms right. of, well, sand is the biggest, silt is in the middle, clay is the smallest. But if the difference between the sizes is really staggering. Clay yes. particles are so small that they can't even be seen with the strongest light microscope. So you have to find other creative ways to study it. And that's part of what makes clay so interesting and so difficult to study is just the sheer minute size of the particles. I know. It's so fascinating. And we're going to get there. But I want to make sure I'm clear with what you're saying. Because, you know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember, and thank you for bringing up those great old episodes with Norm. Shout out to the well-retired, well-deserved Professor Hummel. Oh, yeah. I have a couple of those on my phone that I play like on repeat when I'm in a long drive in the car (laughs) and stuff. I feel like 
like no matter how many times I listen, I always learn something. Yeah, it's just a big shout out to that because one of the things Norm understood was that, especially when it comes to engineering these things and understanding them, they can be measured, right? You, you can get numbers for these things if you've got the right instruments, and then you can determine, you know, the right percentages. And then it can be constructed a particular way. And Norm used to tell me sometimes he couldn't always predict how a mix, for greens anyway, would necessarily perform. It wasn't always exactly easy to do. But what was really clear, Evan, is what I'm trying to get at. You're telling me up until recently, when somebody builds an infill mix somewhere, even at the highest level, they just say, get me this kind of soil. Mm-hmm. Or maybe now that DuraEdge is a big player in this, and I remember when DuraEdge sort of emerged, and I don't know if I'm getting myself in trouble here, but it, maybe that they're a player now, it's become a little bit more homogenous, the kinds of materials and specifications. But you're telling me people basically said, yeah, wash the sand, put it with a thing that's got a silt to clay ratio, and I'm good to go. And that's the level that they had to meet to pass spec. Yeah, that's the way it used to be. Uh, I remember talking to Tom Burns about this topic a while back on a, I think during the pandemic on a podcast type interview. And he talked about when he was starting out with Emil Bosser in Cleveland, he's like, yeah, we'd get dirt from this one pit and we'd take it in the parking lot and mix it with some sand with a front end loader. And that was our infill mix. And they learned, <laughs> you know, they learned to manage that because that was what they had. Nowadays, we do have more sophisticated blending equipment. You alluded to their edge and, you know, without being commercial, they, I think people are kind of familiar with their mixing and blending process and the fact they use the same clay source across a wide geographic area. And so they're able to produce sort of the same mixture over and over. And that is a big component of it because, you know, natural materials are highly variable, right? So whether it's sand or fine grain soil from place to place, those things are put there by nature, not by people. And so there is some degree of heterogeneity in those materials. And so we can adjust the ratios or play with the components to kind of get the product that you want. Some of it comes down to exactly what you said. It's not always easy to find the type of clay that you want, depending on where you are. Take a minute and describe, if you can, what you went through to determine I mean, I just thought it was fascinating the way you were compressing these clay mixes, the way you would test the cleat in and cleat out. And that's, you know, I look at the cleat in, cleat out as sort of like the green speed measurement of infield dirt, if you will, right? What you're trying to achieve, one of the targets, right, that you expect your surfaces to meet. Can you talk a little bit about how hard it is to get the same clay across spectrums and what you went through to try to figure out what makes a clay desirable or not from a performance perspective? Yeah, man, you're taking me back. Well, first of all, thanks for dropping the D word there. When you say the word dirt (laughs) to a lot of soil scientists, they'll sort of look at you like you kick their dog or something. (laughs) But... But uh, uh, in, in, in the baseball world, obviously, we refer to it as dirt. Right. So no offense Well, the technical me, term, but, yeah. we can use the technical term, the infield skin. Yeah, sure. That's that's good, too. Anyway, yeah, infield dirt comes from a lot of different places. And it's funny that you bring this up because like, oftentimes in research, we have obviously these sort of intellectual or scientific questions that we want to answer. But sometimes the hurdles are more like practical and logistical of you know, actually executing your experiments. And I found this really hard to find pure sources of clays because what we wanted to do is instead of just using existing products, you know, we didn't want to make it into a product evaluation type trial. We wanted to go from a fundamental basis. What happens if you have to introduce the listeners to the different families of clay minerals? Yeah, there's basically great. three. There's yeah, yeah. there's sort of smack tight clays, which are a two to one expansible clay. There's kaolinite, which is a one to one clay. And then we have an intermediate 
like an illite, a mixed layer mineral that has two to one spacing, but is not expansive. So we chose those because there are three commonly occurring minerals, but in nature, oftentimes the soils have a mixture of those minerals. And so it'd be difficult to parse out what is the effect of each mineral on its own. And so instead we chose to use those three clays each on their own. And we obtained them from a ceramic supplier because I found actually a lot of literature and not necessarily scientific literature, but anecdotal things you could read about. Mm. And I love the things that ceramics people and potters have to say about clay because they're very experienced with the tactile nature of feeling how the stiffness mm -hmm. and the plasticity of that material changes. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that would be a good resource. And I found a good ceramic supplier that was able to provide us with a number of different clay sources. No, oh, great. One of the things I remember talking to you about these clays really resonated with me even to this day, when we were chatting on the turf show during the crazy times of the pandemic uh, over the last few years, that you said you can't always look at the numbers and tell how something's going to behave, like Norm said, but you use the term, you know, has the properties of or behaves like a clay. You want something that's behaving like a clay, but it might not be defined as a clay. Do I have that right or am, am I missing it? You have it exactly right. So there's a couple of components to that. One, there's really three ways to describe what clay is. We talked about particle size a little bit. The second way is with the minerals. So soil particles are made of inorganic solids that have a regular crystalline structure, and that's how we define what minerals are. And the mineralogy will govern how the surfaces react to water, right? So the, the most reactive clays, like a smectite clay, has tons of surface area and has a lot of negative charge on the surfaces of the particles. So I almost describe it as that surface is kind of angry. It's not satisfied unless it has water clinging to it. So the mineralogy is a second way. And then the third way, I learned this from reading papers and from taking a couple civil engineering classes. And the engineers, of course, are they're an eminently practical group of people. <laughs> right? so they, they don't always, in academia, they, you know, we do maybe, but practicing civil engineers, they don't always care about the fundamentals of why something occurs. They just care about getting the job done. And so the engineer's mindset of, clay, they completely throw out this particle size concept. It's not used really in their field at all. They have these definitions of clay based on plasticity. Uh -huh. And plasticity is defined as the capacity of a material to be shaped or molded and then to retain that new shape once the load is removed. So you think about maybe you're a child even and holding a piece of modeling clay, right? Or right. you have moist soil, you can make a thumb indent in there and it'll hold that shape. Right. And that's kind of this magic property of clay. And you can observe it pretty readily. It's easy to see and feel with your fingers, but right. it's actually harder to describe in a quantitative way. But also something the people in the pottery world, ceramic world, have the tactile sense of what engineers put numbers to. That's exactly right. And one of the first experiments that I did in grad school was really just sort of a deconstructionist mindset of I took four different clay minerals and the same sand, and then I actually bought some silt size powder from this ceramic company. They had crushed quartz into like virtually pure silt, right? So it's hard to find any soil that's 100% silt. So huh. if you want to actually manipulate this silt to clay ratio, logistically, that's pretty hard because you have to find a soil that has a lot more clay, first of all, and then you can dilute it with these silt-sized particles to get it to whatever ratio you want. So I set up this experiment where we made four different infill mixes, all having identical silt-to-clay ratio, but different clay minerals. So if I were to give you a standard particle size distribution soil analysis and say, Frank, which of these infill mixes do you want to pick to construct your infill? You'd say, I don't know, let's just flip a coin. You know, Basically, all four of them are exactly the same. But when we put these mixes into my cylinders in the lab, and we water them and compact them, and then test with this cleat mark device, we found that they all performed very differently. And so right there, you've poked at least one hole in this particle size theory that it does get you a really good start. And not all of those mixes performed poorly necessarily, but they were different. Hmm. And so we were able to show that this is another element, so to speak, of how this mixture might perform out in the field. 
it's so fascinating that we're getting a chance to totally geek out on just the discussions of clay because in the golf world, for example, they do everything they can to avoid having clays in their engineered mixes, right? As you started to deconstruct these things and test them under the sort of engine with the engineering mindset, what you were actually starting to uncover as you were doing this work, was it consistent with what you thought was happening in the practical world and even what Duridge is doing? Or was it still not known and we better develop some more testing methods to determine it? Because obviously this thing is hard to test. I mean, you're spending three years, four years of your life immersed in this thing, you know, buried in the soils lab for months on end doing this stuff. Is there congruence between what you're finding and what's happening out in the field? Or do we need some more data to be able to determine what you're suggesting might be the way to go and what's happening out there? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. If you think about the water content spectrum, you Mm -hmm. have sort of two endpoints. You have the wet end where it's pouring rain and you have to put the tarp on because the soil is becoming mush, basically. And just so everybody's clear about this, that's the reason we cover the infield because of the dirt. They don't care about the grass. No, that's right. Usually the infield grasses or even the outfield grass is constructed from like a USGA type engineered root zone. So it can perk just fine. You're concerned with the infield skin. And we should point out at the high level, this is the biggest concern for the team. So if you're a major league franchise and you have to cover the infield and cancel the game because the field's not safe, there's a big, big financial hit associated with that because you got to pay all the people (laughs) that are taking tickets and parking cars and and packaging hot dogs. And you have to give the fans tickets to the next game. So that's a big hit. And you want to really avoid... Losing a gate would be the industry terminology, exactly right. like at all costs. That's exactly right. So that's a more serious problem. And that's when the soil is too wet. That's not really what this cleat mark test was about. So on the other end of the spectrum, as the soil dries during a day game, you're going to start to lose moisture. And eventually the infill gets really brittle. It starts to break or form these chips or clods or chunks, we would call them. And those little surface imperfections, you could think of them you know, from a golf course standpoint, it's almost like ball marks, right? So nobody likes putting on a green that has ball marks everywhere. So that's, right. you know, it's courtesy to, to repair your ball marks. And that's certainly a maintenance activity, top dressing and trying to repair those and produce that true surface. So that's kind of the enemy of maintaining the infield in a perfect condition during a day game. And that's what this cleat mark test is about. So we did define fairly well what that critical point is for a variety of different soils. And part of the project was creating a device that could actually measure that in a lab, because of course we're interested in the soil, but there wasn't any way to measure what we wanted in the first place. So that took me about two years yeah. just to come up with the device and the methodology. <laughs> And that's just the pace that research goes, right? So that's part of the deal. So I think the data that we are in need of, and I got a little start on this at the end of my project, but I really just ran out of time, is defining this critical water content where the soil is no longer playable at the wetter end when it becomes too soft. Mm -hmm. And this is, to throw a bad soil pun in, it's a little muddier (laughs) because it's not so clear what that value should be, right? There's athletes are different sizes. They run at different rates. They apply different loads and forces. And so that it's, it would be really difficult to define one particular value that sort of the field becomes unplayable at that point. But I think that's a next step. And then to think about how wide is that range between too dry and too wet? And the wider that you can make that with an engineering mindset of the soil components, the easier your job is as a grounds manager because you've got a wider target to hit. So you can either play through rain longer or you can dry down for longer during day games. And to use one last analogy, I like to think about this as like a glass of water. If you're out to dinner at a restaurant, you know, they bring you one of these fancy, like a highball glass that's, you know, cute little four ounce glass. Well, that 
poor server is going to have to keep coming back and filling that water glass up you know, every couple minutes so that you're satiated. And if they pour too much, they're going to overfill it really easily. Right? you got to have good touch. But if they would just give you a bigger glass, they could fill it up once, and they, they could let you drink for a while and let that glass you know, dry down, so to speak. And there's more margin for error. So it gives you a wider target to hit as a grounds manager when you're you know, out there soaking down the infield, and it lets you play through rain longer. Okay, that's interesting. I have a couple of questions about some stuff I played around with Dan Cunningham with at Yankee Stadium, where the reason we're having this conversation is I've been spending 35 years yakking with my old college buddy about managing the skin uh, at Yankee Stadium. Yeah. And his theory always was... You know, this was also back in the day when they played only day games at Wrigley. He goes, that poor guy at Wrigley back in the 90s when, you know, before the lights came on or the late 80s when the lights came on, they had to play day games all the time. So he said it was Mm -hmm. always really hard. His theory was let's fill up or drip water below and let it wick up and see if we can carry the bulk of putting water in that in that dirt and only manage just to surface a little bit. And maybe if it doesn't break it'll just keep wicking up. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Where it is like, I think a lot of hard true courts, tennis courts work like this, Evan, where they've got shillings of stone, very fine pieces of stone that they fill up in a plastic bed and then it interacts with the clay and then works its way up. In theory, what you're saying earlier is if you can keep that head consistent from the top to the bottom and it doesn't break, then it'll still continue to be supplied from below. And for anybody still listening, Evan, <laughs> after this sort of, <laughs> you know, geeked out question, do you think in theory that could work, that maybe it could get through the game if you wet the surface right to the edge so that it lost the water uniformly in a way that it didn't break? Yeah, I do think it's a possibility. It's a really interesting concept, and it's been tried a few different places. I'll just qualify by saying I don't have any personal experience managing a system like this, and so I'm not familiar with what the pain points are. But from a soil physics standpoint, it definitely can work. You know, the fundamentals of capillary rise certainly would apply. I think one of the concerns goes back to the hydraulic conductivity again, because the finer that soil is, the more clay-like it is, the lower the conductivity. And so the soil is not going to transmit water possibly rapidly enough mm. to be able to replenish that surface during over the course of the day game, especially in a you know, place like Texas where it's drying out um, really rapidly. Right. So you may it may be that you would need a sandier mix to be able to facilitate that capillary rise. Mm. And then the other concern is, you know, what happens if something goes wrong underneath yeah. the skin? If you had a, you know, oftentimes it could be porous asphalt, which yeah. would be a little bit hard to dig into. Or if you have pipes, you know, what happens if one of those pipes burst during mm. games? So mm. I would always be kind of sweating that out. But I'm sure that there are some engineering solutions perhaps to make the risk a little bit lower. I do think it's an interesting concept and I'd love to see, you know, it be commercialized so that it could be used by the ground manager. Yeah. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with Evan Machete with Infinite Athlete. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Football season is in full swing, and your golf season may be as well. Or maybe you've put it to bed for the winter. No matter whether you are planning your nutrient management program or executing it, the pros at the Plant Food Company have the products and services that support the best playing conditions in the world, that also support plant health and maximizing the playability of that surface. Learn more at plantfoodco.com.
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here with Evan Machete with Infinite Athlete, a company, as I've just learned, recently formed from a merger between BioCore LLC and who, Evan? Tempest X Machina was the previous company. Excellent. So before we get to the conversation of that new work you're doing, I want to bring it back to the real world a little bit, especially for those, anybody listening that also interacts with, you know, youth and adult or college baseball or something like that. You see a preponderance of synthetic turf as the dirt, so to speak. And the Rangers did not do that. They still sort of went for a dirt, but the rest of the field is synthetic. And that's, I think the Diamondbacks are like that as well. And so baseball still has the dirt involved. And I don't want to go down the wormhole of dirt where there's synthetic turf in a dome. I don't even want to have that conversation. What I want to talk about is I often recommend Northern universities and even other sorts of places that have baseball school districts. In the springtime up here, Evan, you know from your years in in Pittsburgh and, of course, growing up in Wisconsin, the springs are terrible. I mean, by the time you get good weather up here, the baseball season's gone. So more guys have gone to synthetic turf to replace the dirt. Can you speak a little bit about your feelings about sort of what we know about it? Do you like it as a sort of alternative to dirt? And can you talk a little bit about anything you might know about caring for it, right, to keep it performing well? So let's start with how it performs relative to clay. So you brought up an interesting point where you said we're not going to go down the rabbit hole, so I won't go too far. But just to just to start at the entrance anyway, you mentioned that all the major league stadiums that have synthetic turf that are domed, I think there's four, Miami, Texas, Arizona, and Toronto. And there might be a fifth one that I'm missing. Anyway, they all kept the dirt. Although they're enclosed and they're not growing turf, they still kept the infield skin the way it is. That's what the players like. So that's still the gold standard. With that said, in the northern climates, I think in a lot of cases, it's sort of difficult to argue against the ability to get out there and play in January or February, you know, if it's warm enough Mm -hmm. and without having the weather concern. So it absolutely is a viable option. Certainly there's a cost associated with that. And there is some maintenance associated with it too. You know, this is a common thing in the sports field business that we talk about is that synthetic turf is not zero maintenance. And that is particularly true with baseball surface where there are very specific traffic patterns, even on a smaller scale than there might be on a soccer field or a a football field, because a lot of the players are standing relatively in the same area. They're scuffing their feet. Certainly the first base leadoff area receives a whole lot of traffic, much more than the other parts of the infield. And on an infield skin, those areas might be expected to get bowled out a little bit mm-hmm. from all the traffic. And so you can develop bird baths, we call them, or there's a low spot and you can get puddles and ponding there. And that sort of compounds on itself because the softer soil displaces more readily and they get right. deeper and deeper. Right. So on a synthetic surface, you don't necessarily have the bird bath problem, but you do have the problem of the infill getting displaced and of the fibers wearing down. And so one thing that I advise people when they're going to install a field like this is to really think about inlaying those high traffic areas with separate pieces of turf mm. from the start. Mm. So that area around first base, certainly the position areas. And if you do have a synthetic mound, you know, sometimes I don't know what the breakdown is in terms of percentage wise, but some facilities will opt for the synthetic mound and plate, whereas others will opt to keep those areas Mm -hmm. as clay. But in any case, if those areas are synthetic turf, certainly it's a good idea to inlay those also because they're going to need to be replaced because they receive so much more traffic. This is interesting. And part of what's shocking to me, and it was funny that we're talking about this, I was just walking on the new Cornell, uh, the Richard Booth Stadium, the Cornell baseball facility just got rebuilt last year, just opened last spring. So they just had half a season on it, I think, up here. And they're wearing metal spikes, Evan? Yeah, that's a big no-no. Wait, what? Do they need... Okay, first off, because I'm I'm hoping... (laughs) 
I think I'm going to get in trouble here. The first thing I said when I heard they were using metal spikes here at Cornell, I was like, wait, why are you wearing metal spikes? They have pretty good traction at the NFL level and professional soccer, and they don't wear metal spikes. Do most players on synthetic turf, are they allowed to wear metal spikes? Because that then makes the turf planned obsolescent. Oh, yeah, totally. To my knowledge, most manufacturers will stipulate that you don't have any metal cleats and that'll actually void your warranty if you have players wearing metal cleats out there. And so most facilities would prohibit their own players and even the other opposing team from wearing metal cleats. So this could be a sticking point because if you're a visiting team, you know, you have to basically buy a new pair of shoes just to be able to play this, you know, handful of games potentially. But it's definitely not recommended. You know, it may not be a universal thing that the warranty is banned. I can't speak for every manufacturer, but in general, definitely the molded or rubber cleats would be the recommended footwear. So fascinating. So you're basically saying in these specific traffic areas in baseball, and I think we've learned this too in lacrosse, so that kind of a surface in front of the mm, goal mouth, Absolutely. you just have to plan that the carpet itself is going to wear out. Now, you can extend its life, I'm assuming, by maintaining that rubber volume or the infill volume, if you will, after every game, much like a local team would help with clay out on the field and taking care of the mound and the batter's box. You just want to make sure you're always redistributing or top dressing the rubber out there. Is Am I correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. That the rubber and the infill management is kind of one of the best ways to keep those fibers protected. That's kind of what they're there for is really to protect the fibers and provide something to, to give a little more traction. Oftentimes the infield or the dirt portion of the synthetic turf is a slit film type fiber, which is designed to actually bloom and encapsulate the infill so that it doesn't migrate as much. Mm. And those sorts of fibers can be a little bit more difficult to actually get the infill down through the quote unquote, the canopy, so mm. to speak. So it may require a little bit extra grooming or brushing, but definitely that's a way to prolong the lifetime of that surface and to keep it safe too, right? Because as the infill goes away, whether it's walking off in the player's shoes or their equipment or just mm-hmm. getting displaced to a different part of the field, that surface is going to become a lot harder and uh, could potentially be a safety concern. Okay. Well, that you have then now made the perfect transition to the final part of our conversation. Before we wrap up, I want to talk about your current role with Infinite Athlete. As I understand it in your LinkedIn profile, you essentially go around and are testing fields for the NFL. And while we're going to be very careful about some of the things we talk about, I certainly know you want to talk a little bit about the sort of importance of understanding how much like your sort of philosophical approach to managing the dirt, Evan, I got to believe what appealed to you to leave, you know, baseball and, and go into testing of these fields, both natural and synthetic had to fundamentally do with your curiosity around the relationship between, you know, the way the surface is sort of designed and managed and the player's interaction with that surface. I know John Sorokin studies this a lot and, you know, in Tennessee on, on synthetic and sort of Andy as well with the footwear stuff. But when you're out there testing fields, you're really trying to understand sort of what's going on between the surface and the athlete. So let's just start out, if you wouldn't mind, just talking a little bit about what your role is and the kind of what I would call surveillance you're doing of these playing surfaces. Sure. So the NFL has a really a holistic approach towards injury prevention. And this has become more and more prevalent over the years. You may even see on TV, there's the player health and safety commercials, and we support that effort. This goes not just for the playing surface, but sort of the interaction between the cleats and the playing surface and other sorts of equipment. So we've seen a number of advances in, in helmet technology and shoulder pads. And one of the things that 
that Andy discovered several years ago, you know, as he was doing a lot of traction research, was that the difference in cleats mm -hmm. and cleat forms oftentimes exceeds the differences across surfaces. Mm -hmm. So part of the research question is tuning, how can we tune the surfaces to the cleats to provide not only a safe surface, but also a playable surface? Because as an athletic field manager, three pillars of maintaining a good athletic field would be safety is always the number one priority, making sure that the athletes are at a minimal risk to get injured. Obviously, every sport, particularly contact sports, they have some injury risk associated with them. And so our job as sports turf managers or as researchers is to make that risk as low as possible. And then the second component is the playability performance, right? So you want those athletes to be able to perform to their maximum potential you know almost if you think about like growing a plant it has some amount of genetic potential and you want to put it in the proper environment right so that it can flourish and that's the same way with athletes we want to create a surface that is conducive to them performing all their maneuvers at their maximum potential and so those are the two things that are the focus and that's a perfect place to ask this question and i'm so grateful that you reminded me that in fact that was happening and Andy did do a bunch of testing with cleats and it is something we always talk about. So it, it can't just be about the surface when we're thinking about how the athlete's trying to perform. There's two questions here. One is, what do you do when they're in conflict, when the surface is really going to let them perform incredible feats of athleticism, but also is likely to result in the highest level of injury? And how do you then and this is more philosophical than anything. How do you, because I, I know data shows players will not care about necessarily the safety themselves, but they certainly want to care about their performance. That seems like a hard thing to balance. I don't know necessarily if there's a question there, but it sounds like you're trying to tweeze that out and then advise athletes and teams accordingly. Professional athletes have, they tend to have very large personalities um, <laughs> due to the way that they're conditioned. And, and obviously they're very successful and certainly to a high degree, they have a right to feel that way. But to get an athlete to change their mind or to inform them using data, oftentimes is a fool's errand because they've already made up their mind. And oftentimes the players will choose their cleats based on style. You've probably seen if you watch football on Sundays, there's actually a couple weeks ago. Was yeah, my cleats, my, my cleats. Yeah. So oftentimes they're chosen based on just the appearance or possibly some of them might even actually put the cleats on and try them on and run around on the surface and see how they feel. We have a whole team of people at Infinite Athlete that work on this exact problem, which is understanding what goes into a player's mind when they choose a cleat and also potentially improving the way that that footwear fits, right? So it's about safety performance. And we actually have a cleat poster that's published every year showing the relative performance of various cleats. There's actually a ranking based on there are certain cleats that are prohibited. There are mm -hmm. certain cleats which are recommended. And that's something that has been an ongoing effort here. So it's very interesting, right? That it, it is, as nobody's surprised, more complex than just saying synthetic versus natural, right? Which is, you know, what you're saying, the cleats sometimes can be so influential that they're just dangerous, potentially posing a hazard independent of the surface that they're on. But sometimes the surface does matter. So I want to cut through, you know, a lot of the hype because, of course, as a New Yorker, you're just inundated with the whole Aaron Rodgers thing to the point where, you know, I get high schools asking me questions uh, about these things. So you have, in many ways, Evan, this sort of drumbeat that a Cornelian J.D. Treader with the Players Association has been stoking, and you see the high-profile things that are out there. 
But I know from what you've just said that it's not just about the surface. Heck, we had somebody in Tennessee say, let's get this grass out of here and put synthetic in. So it's not like a universally accepted thing. And we know that there's uh, constraints associated with it. But when you start to look generally across the NFL to the extent that you're able to, there's a criteria that you are testing or that is being tested, and Andy sort of talked to me about this a little bit, that is saying, yeah, there's no reason to think that this surface is more likely to result in an injury than another surface. I'm assuming that's the fundamental question the NFL is asking itself every week. Injury research is very, very difficult to perform, and there's a lot of components, and there's different angles that people have taken over the years. But when you look at one individual injury, it's very oftentimes very difficult to parse out what role the surface played in it, because human beings can orient themselves and, and run into each other at really an infinite number of angles and configurations and loads. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of research on the degree of loading that occurs during athletic competition based on the person's body weight and those sorts of variables, and that's an area of ongoing research. So one of the one of the ways that injuries have been studied is through epidemiological studies right. where there are the injuries are tracked over time and the NFL actually has a very robust system for recording these things and they're really it's my knowledge the only professional sports league in the world that has such a granular data set on the injuries and so that allows them to look at trends over time and while it's not so simple to look at one injury sometimes those large data sets are able to reveal patterns that one data point or several data points wouldn't be able to the same kind of data they use to say maybe we should stop kickoffs and punts. The same kind of data that might say one position is maybe more prone to certain kinds of injuries than another position, right? So that same kind of surveillance data is the granularity that you're talking about. They have ways of looking at various amounts of data and making data-driven decisions. They do. And beyond that, there are many variables that can't even be measured, right? So you don't know, maybe a player is having something going on in their personal life and they weren't sleeping or they they weren't hydrated correctly and they tore a ligament as a result of something that they put in their body. There's many other factors beyond the things that we can observe and measure and track over time. And that's just part of the game. It's what makes it so difficult to study. And that's why the law of large numbers can provide you with some broader trends, but it doesn't necessarily provide specifics on a given stadium or a given surface. And so when you look at the epidemiological data, like we all have, it's very interesting to discuss a very specific kind of injury in this case, right, where the surface might be more implicated than otherwise, right? Obviously, when Brett Favre hit his head on the frozen University of Minnesota synthetic turf in January when his career was coming to a close, Hardness matters, but beyond that, it seems to be the sort of rotational traction that you're able to get on these synthetic surfaces with the right kind of cleats. And the epidemiological work, as we see all the time from the turf grass producers and and J.C. Treader, is resulting in a higher incidence of this particular kind of injury. When you're testing the surfaces, that's one of the injuries. I'm assuming you're taking a suite of data that we're not going to discuss, but it's giving you indications that that field is, again, not likely when the players step on it to result in any particular injury on that day, even though the epidemiology says chronic playing on these surfaces leads to more lower extremity non-contact injuries. 
I'm actually going to return to an earlier part of the conversation where we talked about the range of water content on this an infill mix and use that same analogy excellent. to kind of talk about this because there's an envelope for performance and safety, whether it's natural grass or synthetic turf. And so with regards to traction, you got to obviously have some amount of traction to be able to play football. You think about if NFL athletes were playing football on the beach you know, with loose sand, no vegetation, obviously that's not going to go very well. Your performance is going to be pretty low. And there is an injury risk associated with that, right? There's either not enough traction or there is a potential for energy loss. You know, you're wasting a lot of energy moving those soil particles around that could instead be transferred back to your body. And you have to remember too, as I've come to learn from even Gerald Henry and Chase Straw's work, where they've looked at these micro differences across a field. I would imagine athletes at the highest level, when they're planting their foot, there's a million calculations going on in their mind. I mean, I I watched that Barry Sanders movie on Amazon the other night, which I would recommend to anybody interested in football. And you can't believe the intuition that young man had when he was playing. Athletes make a calculus all the time when they're planting that foot and also have some confidence that what they're relying on it for is going to happen. They do. They have a tremendous body control and instinct, and that's part of what makes them you know, so elite and so different than people like you and I. Yeah. So on the upper end of that envelope, obviously we need to have some amount of traction for performance, but you can't have so much traction that your foot becomes fixated in the surface. And instead of the surface giving way or the interaction failing, so to speak, that instead your ligaments give way. That's certainly not good. And you talked about body control a little bit, and that is an important component of preventing injury, obviously having a strong musculoskeletal system. But there's some data showing how a person's reaction time influences their chance for injury. So mm. there is a, a minimal window of time where no matter who you are, your reaction time is not going to be fast enough to be able to activate and fire those muscles to sort of protect your joints. And that's another mm. area that is a, kind of an active research. So let's wrap it up on this. This has been an absolutely glorious conversation, and it's so great that you were able to tie back in that sort of safety envelope or performance envelope that you look at. Because I remember chatting with Andy about this. It isn't just about the field. You know, you can't have stuff lying around. You know what I mean? You can't have a cart park somewhere where somebody's going to run or, or run into. And we see a lot of these sort of issues sometimes on the sidelines with that. But these high-profile injuries seem to suggest that there's this vast disparity in fields across the league that you're more likely to get injured on than not injured on. But, you know, without revealing anything, and certainly don't answer it if you can't, you guys aren't collecting any data that indicates any of these fields are as wildly outlying from an injury perspective or your testing numbers perspective that justifies the hype that these fields, one is worse than another. It is funny to read the media. And there's days where I read comments on social media or on a newspaper article and I laugh at them. There's other days where I just decide maybe I don't need to read this. Everybody on the internet has an opinion, right? And oftentimes not the best informed, right? So one other component to this is people in the public don't often realize how often these surfaces are changed over. For the listeners who aren't familiar with the sodding schedule in the NFL, probably everybody listening to this podcast is familiar with the process of replacing sod, whether it's on a putting green or a tee box or whatever it might be. But the sod that's used in the NFL is typically ready to play on almost immediately after installing. It's very Mm -hmm. thick. It's like a phone book. And those strips are very heavy. 
and that allows the surface to be changed over pretty rapidly. So there are some NFL stadiums which have six or seven different playing fields over the course of the year. And to some degree, this happens with synthetic turf as well. Now, they're not changed over typically during the season, but there are some stadiums which change their surface every year as just a matter of habit. Some of them Mm -hmm. have many, many events, and so the surface does undergo some wear and some degradation. And it has value. I mean, we sold a baseball field here of synthetic turf that was only four years old. Mm-hmm. And a local school district was happy to purchase it for a reduced uh, fee. And so, yeah, it has life if you're changing them out, even when they're used intensely like that. So go ahead. Keep going. Well, I think where I was going with that is when people have sort of grab onto a narrative that a particular facility has a better or worse field, you know, so to speak. What is better or worse? Like we're still right. even defining what that means. That's what but I mean. It's not necessarily the same surface that the players are performing on year to year or potentially even week to week. So to come up with a narrative that Stadium X is more dangerous than Stadium why oftentimes it doesn't really have much of a basis because the field itself is totally different. Evan, it's such a joy chatting with you. I know that the people that have stuck around through our dive into the wormhole with Clay, I believe at some point people will be having this podcast on their phone, listening and saying the same things about you that you said about Norm Hummel. I have just really marveled at your use of the scientific method to explore these incredibly fascinating topics and actually work with the guy I've admired a lot, Andy McNitt, really pioneered in an area when no one was working in it and Andy was really a leader and I think continues to be involved in this thing in in retirement. So let me thank you again for taking the time uh, to join me. And and I hope this continues to go well with you with Infinite Athlete. Thank you, Frank. I'm thrilled to be on longtime listener. And uh, I feel like I've made it in the turf business. When you're on Frankly Speaking, that's your big time. So thank you. Evan Machete from Infinite Athlete. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. Appreciate you joining us. Big thanks to Evan Machete. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability. And Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.